Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week's podcast is about China and Russia and what Xi Jinping's recent visit to Moscow tells us about the future of this important relationship. Last week, we talked about the Iran-Saudi deal what it means for the Middle East and for China's role in the changing world order. And this week, we're going to talk about what is possibly an even more important relationship, China's relationship with Russia. What's in it for both countries? Are there any limits to the friendship without limits? And how has Xi's embrace of Putin been perceived in Europe? So here to discuss these and other important questions, we have an all-star cast. First up is Janka Ertl, who is the director of ECFR's Asia program come back after a sabbatical where she was writing about a a huge important book about China, which we'll talk about later on in the year. And also back to podcast is Alicia Bajulska, who is a policy fellow and expert in Chinese foreign policy. And actually, as of last week, she's no longer simply uh, Alicia Bajulska, but Dr. Bajulska. So many congratulations, Alicia, or Dr. Alicia. Thanks, Mark. So um, thank you very much to both of you for joining. Last week, uh, Xi Jinping completed a three-day visit to Moscow, his first since the invasion of, of Ukraine. There's been lots of of Sturm und Drang about it and what it means, um, and we should talk about the the kind of big picture. But maybe we should just start with actually what happened on the ground. Alicia, maybe you could just tell us about some of the kind of key takeaways from what actually happened during that visit. First of all, I think that the whole big, let's say, drama around the meeting uh, was quite worthwhile. Xi Jinping uh, met with Putin, and it was a very important meeting, given the fact that it was the first meeting after he was uh, re-elected, or not really re-elected, but chosen yet again as uh, China's top leader. And he traveled for um, for this meeting with a huge delegation and, and people from his surroundings. And there were at least two big takeaways that were making rounds in the media, two big joint statements that were signed uh, and announced uh, between uh, Putin and Xi. So the first one was focused on the political dimension, and the second one was about economics. Uh, And the political one was much longer, and it was basically a um, more detailed and prolonged reiteration of the points we have already seen in what we now know as the joint statement from the 4th of February 2022, which was signed during uh, Putin's visit to Beijing, right before his invasion of Ukraine. And that was, that was quite an important document, which in retrospect looks like a statement of intent or a plan for Putin and, and Xi to jointly rebuild the, inter, the existing international order uh, so that it reflects Moscow's and Beijing's interests, especially long-term interests. And also by describing and pointing towards shared existential threats, that is the US-led international order and rules-based international order, um, and by describing certain plans uh, and intentions to, uh, quote-unquote, democratize the existing international order. So what happened last year was reiterated yet again in the the joint statements from last week, but also quite importantly, the political uh, statement seemed to have been more important because of its length and also the details included 
So as I said before, the democratization of IR has been uh, stressed. There was a lot of stress on that. And also, for example, fight against color revolutions. With Xi saying that consolidation and development of China-Russia relations has been actually a strategic choice made by China based on its fundamental interests and world development. And that's really telling in the context of um, of the war in Ukraine and how China has positioned itself uh, throughout the past year as an actor that wants to be perceived as neutral, but actually isn't. Uh, and its own position towards the war is actually really pro-Russia. And just to add, the, the economic statement was a bit more vague. So it was talking about eight big dimensions of economic uh, cooperation between China and Russia until 2030. And it was, um, you know, quite conventional in terms of, of the aspects that were uh, covered. Uh, it was about trade, about finance cooperation, but also about the dollarization and China's and Russia's move towards this world that is less based on dollar. Uh, so it was kind of about shielding China and Russia in the long term, because also it was framed as a plan that is supposed to be um, developed until 2030 as a way of, of um, protecting Chinese and Russian economies against external shocks, uh, presumably in relation to, for example, potential sanctions, not only on Russia, but also on, uh, on China. So let's, um, let's go into some, that was a lot, you put a lot on the table there, Alicia. Um, and I think there's sort of three things which I think would be really interesting for us to to go into over the next period of time. One is is this kind of idea of these two different ideas of democratization. There's the sort of American idea of of uniting the democracies against the threat of revisionist autocratic states like Russia and China. And a sort of Chinese idea of democratization or a Sino-Russian idea of democratization, which means a world where it's not just the West that sets the rules, but other countries are empowered. And I think that points to one of the kind of fundamental structural reasons why this is turning into something that, that is not an axis of convenience. Secondly, you had this kind of question of, of the economy as a crucial part of the global order and a, as a sort of battleground and the idea of de-dollarization, which I think is is very important. And, and the third thing, which I think it would be good to talk about is just the, the kind of intricacies of the Sino-Russian relationship and the details and where that's going and the mutual perceptions, because there does seem to be a contradiction in China between the sort of tactical uh, contempt for, for what Russia's doing and how it has been able to fight the war and its kind of lack of success therein, but also this strategic idea that if America is the big problem, China can't afford for Russia to fail. But maybe we could start with this idea of the of the global order and these different ideas of democracy. Yanka, you've been thinking a lot about that. Can you explain why that's helpful for us to 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 understand how China's going to play its relationship with Russia and maybe not have illusions that they really are going to be a kind of neutral broker between uh, between Russia and Ukraine? I think it's important to um, to look at the words that are being used because, in a way, the statements, the, the joint Russia-China statements of the past year in total, if we look at the one from February last year as well, they use these terminologies um, and just basically make them void of their meaning. So, or give it new meaning, basically say, you know, this is true multilateralism. We're talking about true democracy. We've talked about their own countries being true democracies. Um, and this is taking kind of the terminology that, uh, that Western countries are using with which they are describing their own realities, their own systems of government, and just turning it into something new, um, turning 
it into something that gives a different meaning or just blurs the meaning of it altogether so that the term becomes sort of um, unoperationalizable for international relations in general. And this is not by accident. This is on purpose to take these terminologies and basically conquer them, um, conquer the terminology with which um, one has been perceived that the West has been dominating the world. And by taking the words away, um, you can take some of the power away in a way. And this whole idea of the democratization of the international order is something that China has been talking about for the Chinese government has been talking about for a very, very long time. It is about rebalancing global power. It is about being able to change the rules. It is about changing the way the interpretation of the rules has been working, because now that China is in a powerful position to actually change the rules in a different way, um, you know, you can say, well, we haven't actually been part of this. Um, we haven't been part of setting these rules, which is a myth. China was part of setting the rules, but it wasn't as powerful as the West at the time. And therefore, the privileges that are baked into the system by the West are now on the table um, and are being discussed and are being kind of revised by China. And it's important to have partners for that. And therefore, the China-Russia relationship on the strategic level is incredibly important to drive this narrative. And it plays well with countries in the so-called global south that are also more in a way, they know what they don't want. Um, there's a, a strong sense of kind of a feeling of uh, we, we don't want a, a Western-led order. We want the order to be more fair, but that there's not a really clear idea of what is the alternative that is emerging. And in a way, China offers with the ambiguity in the wording a projection space in which all of the countries can sort of wish for what that order could look like. And it's, it becomes in this ambiguity and in the kind of wobbly words that are being used, the countries can feel like they are being heard, despite the fact that there is actually no concreteness to this, because what is democratization of um, international order supposed to mean in the China-Russia sense? Just China being more powerful? Um, or does it actually mean something concrete for those countries? Alicia, maybe we can take that a little bit further. I mean, my kind of sense talking to Chinese people is that they're not trying to offer kind of direct alternative to the U.S., alliance because they realize they can't win a game of alliances. They've only got one formal ally and that's North Korea. So they're starting from a pretty bad place if it's alliances versus alliances. So the goal has been more to sort of tap into this sense that the current order is illegitimate, that the revisionist powers are not just China and Russia, but they're in fact the West who are now weaponizing the global financial order deciding that Kosovo is a state when it wasn't a state beforehand and therefore keying into this sense of double standards and illegitimacy to find an alignment with a lot of the the states that feel somewhat disgruntled particularly in the so-called global south how does that promise of democratization of kind of of lessening the power of the west and therefore increasing the power of others, including Russia and China, translate into a into a kind of offer? And was there anything in Beijing aimed at the rest of the world which could deliver on that promise? That's a really good question. And I think it's a really important angle to talk about because in, in Europe, we have a tendency to look at China-Russia relations from a very specific perspective, especially in the context of the war in Ukraine. We see this, uh, what we we might call informal alliance forming. And this, for us, it's obviously a threat in a way that um, it is not in China's interest to see a 
much weakened Russia um, because of potential security implications of a weakened Moscow. But for the rest of the world, I don't really see uh, a same perception developing. And we already have a lot of evidence suggesting that China might not, not necessarily be more skillful in approaching the global south, but definitely by not really defining very well its own offer, it enables third countries to exploit and to somehow project their own interests and their own visions of the world or the way they perceive the U.S. or the role of the U.S. in, in the global order. And that's a very uh, useful approach, I would say. But in relation to, to Russia, there is definitely a lot of efforts to somehow legitimize not only Russia by, by visiting by visiting Moscow, she being there, it's definitely a very good uh, event for Moscow to exploit on the domestic scene to show um, to its own society that Russia is not completely isolated. But at the same time, also for China, this is a way to um, self-legitimize its own regime by showcasing that China can play a quote-unquote responsible role on the international arena vis-a-vis uh, -vis what its own um, uh, propaganda apparatus um, portrays as, you know, the West, which is only stirring trouble, antagonizing and being very aggressive. And this kind of narrative is indeed probably quite attractive to many, especially in places that are geographically distant from China. But whether this will work uh, in the long term, it is, you know, still an, un an unanswered question. But definitely China and Russia are working towards what China calls discourse power. So they want to cooperate in order to strengthen their ability to control the way their not only their partnership, but also China's own position in the world is portrayed to marginalize the voices that are more critical of, of China. And definitely there's a lot of room um, for cooperation here because Russia has been very skillful in its own type of disinformation or information manipulation, while China is still on the learning curve. But I think that still in not only in Europe, but also in, in, in many parts of the world outside of Europe, there is a lot of room uh, to develop new tactics, but also new tools to increase both Russia's and China's discourse power. And these will be exploited in the coming years. So, Janka, the second big thing which we saw coming out of this was the sort of extension of the struggle from these kind of geopolitical things to the to the global economy. And Alicia mentioned this idea of de-dollarization and the kind of threat of sanctions, which is obviously quite high in the Chinese consciousness um, as they think about Taiwan. Can you talk a bit about that and how the economy is becoming a central part of of how the Chinese think about their security and their power in the 21st century. Yeah, of course. I mean, for, for, for the Chinese government, um, for a long time, not actually, that's not a new thing, that economic security is part of national security that's been there from basically from the start. And also this idea that you have to have economic power to withstand um, in, in the national power. This is something that in Mao's times was something that was really important, like pushing the industrial revolution forward, becoming a leading industrial power to secure your existence because um, from the logic, and that's a logic that also holds for the China-Russia relationship, you know, if you're under siege, 
siege all the time. If you're under siege, then what you can do is you can grow stronger because then you can defend yourself better. And that is on all fronts. That is militarily, but that's also obviously economically. So that's not a new concept as a as a whole in a whole, but in the way that the Xi Jinping leadership has been pushing this, it's obviously become a much more focused approach to how to strengthen China's resilience, how to strengthen China's independence, um, and how to build an economy that can kind of withstand the pressures. Part of that is making China more resilient against external shocks and external threats, particularly from the US and its allies, how it's being portrayed, at least on the Chinese side, when it comes to the economic power that these uh, countries hold uh, in terms of being able to sanction the Chinese economy, to cut off access, etc. This can be done either through asymmetric dependencies, so where China then has other things with which um, it can threaten the West to withhold certain critical raw materials, things like that, but also the ability to um, have sort of little life jackets in which trade is possible in other ways with other means, with other players when it comes to, for example, fossil fuels or when when it comes to food that needs to be imported, grain, for example. And so creating relationships over the long run with a number of countries, including China, including Russia, including Iran, including North Korea, with which you can kind of set up an alternative sort of trading order as well, is an important element of that. But I think we need to be very careful to equate that immediately with de-dollarization. Everything that is in the statement on increasing trade in renminbi, in the Chinese currency, um, that's all important. And the trade has gone up massively, but it does not replace China's dependence on the international financial system. So these are all baby steps in a certain direction, but they give you a trajectory of what the intention is uh, and what role kind of the, the trade with Russia plays in that. At the moment, trade with Russia is incredibly beneficial for the Chinese side. Their trade has gone up quite significantly. Um, and it is also important that China gets a really good price because its bargaining power vis-a-vis um, -vis Russia is increasing significantly by the day. Russia is growing more dependent on the Chinese economy, and that gives Beijing power to set prices and to change the kind of the balance of power between the two sides. So that maybe brings us to the the third big theme which i wanted to talk about which is the more kind of looking at the, the the different bits of of china's relationship with russia obviously ukraine um is a, a really important part of it at the moment um and um so you know there're two kind of big debates going on about that at the moment firstly you know china's peace plan we talked a bit about that i think um uh in the past because it was launched uh, at the munich security conference when we we did a special podcast from munich where we first kind of mentioned it but also there is now this debate about china uh delivering armaments to russia um maybe we can look at those two things because they seem maybe slightly at odds with one another should we start with the peace plan alicia you've been looking a lot at uh china and the lessons it's drawing from ukraine and the role it's playing in ukraine what's happened to the, where are we we at what's happened since the the visit to Moscow? Did anything happen in Moscow? Uh, what do we know after the Chinese contacts with the Ukrainians? Where do we think that this particular initiative is going? Well, first of all, I think that we shouldn't talk about a peace plan. And I know this is just, you know, um, a catchy name that is very attractive uh, in the media, but it's not really a plan if you don't have any solutions in it, right? So what we refer to as China's peace plan is basically 
a statement, a political statement reaffirming China's position on the war in Ukraine, which has been very consistent, uh, more or less, from the very beginning of the invasion. So the first document of, of, of this kind was published by Beijing already, I think, two or three days after the war started. And the so-called peace plan is basically... Uh, a recycled version of the same statements talking about respecting sovereignty, territorial integrity, about opposition to unilateral sanctions. So an attempt to make China appear as a neutral actor and also as a constructive actor in this whole uh, situation. But on the other hand, if you look at uh, everything that has been happening bilaterally and also in Moscow uh, last week, there's a clear discrepancy between uh, what China wants to um, achieve uh, in its relations with Moscow and what it projects as a discourse to the outside world, both to, towards Europe or, or towards the global south. And there's a lot of tension between those two, because strategically, it's quite clear that um, although Russia might not be the perfect partner, China still doesn't have any alternative partners to develop this kind of informal alliance or, um, you know, call it whatever you want. Definitely not a marriage of convenience, but a very close strategic partnership aiming at fighting the U.S. and what uh, China um, frames as U.S. hegemony or neo-imperialism. Um, so from this perspective, if you actually look very closely into all kinds of documents that China has been publishing throughout the, the last year, it's quite clear that by potentially engaging in any kind of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, China would be actually positioning itself as an actor actively working towards changing European security architecture to Beijing's interests. And here, one information is crucial. China has many times opposed the expansion of NATO, which is already one thing that does not work in Ukraine's interest. And also, if you look at uh, everything that China said, Beijing has never talked about, for example, Russian troops leaving uh, occupied territories in Ukraine. So there is a huge asymmetry between what China frames as neutrality and what, for example, Ukraine would understand by this term, or Europe, or Central and Eastern Europe, or European Union. So definitely there are different perspectives here, and we have to be really cautious in terms of trying to talk about uh, China as, as this potential actor. No, no, I, when I... When I used the the term peace plan, it was very much um, in in scare quotes, and I think everyone realizes that the reason for this initiative was was not because they thought there was any hope in hell of of Ukraine wanting to have a ceasefire at the moment, which entrenched uh, Russian occupation of of twenty percent of its territory, but more to put the West and Ukraine on the back foot. But it's interesting also to see how the, the Chinese are sort of playing this out, because what part of the cover for the trip to Moscow was that this was a peace mission rather than just a, a kind of alliance building mission. And there has been lots of talk about President Xi finally uh, picking up the phone and talking to, to Volodymyr Zelensky. Yanka, have you um, learned very much about the, the, the contact between the, the Chinese and the Ukrainians? So, so far, it seems like that call has been announced a couple of times, but it hasn't happened. Uh, Zelensky has been very clear that he would very much like to speak to the Chinese government, um, but uh, that he hasn't received any direct contact in that regard. And it is a bit of a situation in which the Chinese have put themselves 
themselves, Chinese government has put themselves on the back foot because they could have done a call at very early on in, uh, you know, everyone and their grandmother was calling Zelensky in the early days of the war. Chinese could have done the same thing, uttered a couple of platitudes, um, and that would have kind of been a regular thing then. They could have done it a couple of months later. It would not have really changed anything. But now that they've waited for so long to actually have that call, it has become laden with all of this, uh, or loaded with all of this meaning and significance, which um, it cannot deliver on because obviously at the moment what China has to offer are a couple of platitudes for Zelensky. So this is a, it's a strategically a really interesting situation um, where the kind of the Chinese have backed themselves against the wall a little bit with this call and then announcing it as well. um, So that now everyone is sort of sitting there and waiting and will listen very carefully what exactly is being said. So I'm just kind of curiously looking at how they will back themselves out of this situation um, and when they will get this call out of the way, because at some point it has to happen. And there was this talk about surprise visit to Kiev. There was the talk about um, kind of whether there's a physical meeting of the two possible in any sort of way. The fact that the Japanese uh, prime minister was um, in Kiev at the same time as the Chinese president was in Moscow was quite indicative of how the kind of the world looks at this conflict at the moment and how much of a global conflict the the war in Ukraine has become. And I think this is important because we often have this notion of saying, oh, this is a European war and doesn't actually have anything to do with the world. And you hear the Indian foreign minister saying, you know, don't make it the world's problem. This is clearly a global conflict and it is clearly playing out across theaters. And this is what was incredibly visible at that very moment when we had the Japanese prime minister and the, and the Chinese president present there in the region at the same time. So I think it's good to see how the other players, including Japan as G7 presidency, is picking this up and is basically holding Beijing accountable. We will see with all the visits coming up now um, of all of the European leaders, including, you know, Burrell and Sanchez and Macron and von der Leyen, all of them kind of flocking to Beijing now, how much of a deterrent that can be, how joined and united the message that Europe sends to Beijing is, and how clearly they can say, you know, actually, China delivering arms or ammunition to Russia is a European security issue. There are European interests involved. We would take hard measures if this were to happen. And we're not going to wait for the US to sanction China and then respond to US sanctions and kind of go along. But we are actually, this is in our interest. I think that's the message that would create the greatest deterrent on the Chinese side, um, because there is ambiguity at the moment about are the Europeans actually willing to stand up for their interest in this regard as well? So maybe we should end with that question of the the arms. One of our predictions, Jeremy and I do an annual podcast predictions, was, was um, at the beginning of the year was that uh, Chinese armaments would find their way into Russian hands and that there would be a big fuss about this. You know, we don't have a 100% success rate for all of our predictions, but this one seems to have um, entered the public sphere in the early doors in, in the year. And it's kind of uh, a big question as to, A, why Russia would do this and B, you know, what would be at stake? Would it be possible to maintain its kind of stated position of neutrality if it's if it's actually overtly arming the the Russians rather than just doing it through, uh, you know, you know, sending extra weapons into North Korea or Iran, which find their way into Russian hands. Alicia, has there been any more news on that story? Not really. Uh, As you've just said, I think that uh, it's rather unlikely that China will overtly send any kind of lethal aid to Russia. But uh, covertly, it's a different story. And I think, you know, it also depends on the definition of, of aid. 
for example, uh, and this is something that I've been repeating a lot of times, uh, the bilateral trade in semiconductors, Chinese made, not really cutting edge uh, semiconductors are being sold to, to Russia uh, on a really massive scale for the past year. And we don't really know what's happening uh, with this kind of components once they reach uh, Russia. And this obviously is a certain way of supporting the Russian military industry. But, uh, you know, the whole debate is about lethal aid in terms of, you know, very narrowly defined um, armaments or, or, or shipments of kind of equipment that we would associate with actual military. But here, I don't think that we've seen any news and China has been very cautious to balance this narrative. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to see more uh, examples of this kind of balancing, for example, also in, in regards to Russia's nuclear threats, uh, with China officially opposing and stating that it opposes um, any kind of um, behavior like this with a nuclear w war, which cannot be one. But, you know, Russia has been saying similar things and, and publishing similar statements for, for quite a while. So political statements is one thing, but then obviously actions is, is all other. They mentioned with Russia actually understanding very well that uh, China has to balance its position towards uh, Europe and towards the West. So I don't think that even if we're seeing this kind of signs of or signs that are read by the media as China may be distancing itself from Russia, I don't see a lot of room for qualitative change in China's approach towards Russia in the short term. Okay. Unless maybe Russia gets totally desperate and, and needs the, the weapons in order not to get defeated. I was hoping to come back to you, Yanka, to ask you more about the perceptions of, uh, of China in Europe and how that's changing, particularly around these trips. But maybe we should get the two of you back to do a separate podcast on that because we have run out. Of time. I was just saying, we have to do an hour version of this, maybe. This is really a complex story. <laughs> Well, what? let's do that. It's a deal. Uh, we've got one thing left to do on this podcast, though, even though we're already over time, and that's our bookshelf segment. Yanka, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I would like to recommend a fantastic book uh, from 2020 by Alan Bollard. Um, he's a New Zealand economist and was the governor of the, of the Reserve Bank in New Zealand. He wrote a book called Economists at War that describes the period between 1935 and 55 through the lens of the different economists that were basically kind of feeding the war machines in their respective regions. And because he's from New Zealand, he crosses the arc of like the European theatre and the Asian theatre in a way that I've never read before. And it helped me gain a very different perspective on this. And I would like to give this a big shout out. He also has a, a sequel coming out in September, which is The Economist in the Cold War that I'm already looking forward to. So page turners that write about war and the economy are rare. This one's a great one. Fantastic. What about, in fact, Andrew Small recommended them uh, on the podcast last week. So Everyone should definitely uh, get these things with these two recommendations, uh, one after another. Alicia, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I'm reading something quite special. Uh, it's called Our Share of Night by uh, Mariana Enriquez. And it's a very kind of peculiar story that combines political critique and social critique of Argentinian contemporary history with kind of horror, very gloomy atmosphere, uh, and a whole story about this secret society that is summoning darkness, but actually it's a social critique. So it's very special, but also very long, over 700 pages. But I highly recommend it. 
wow, I've got a couple of very brainy friend, uh, friends here on the podcast. I, if I've been a bit more incoherent than normal, it's because I'm currently suffering from um, from COVID. Um, so I've not actually felt up to reading recently. So I've been uh, binge watching um, Netflix at the moment. And the best thing I found was uh, an Israeli series called Hit and Run, which I recommend because it has a rather unique combination of modern ballet and geopolitics and uh, and spy action. It's from the same people who made Folder, and um, it definitely got me through my worst period of uh, of COVID at the beginning of the disease. Anyway, um, I think that's all we've got time for this week. If you've enjoyed listening to it, please do head to whatever platform you use to download this from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website, ecfr.eu. But for now, from Janka Ertl, Alicia Bachulska, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.